We're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, we're beginning in verse number 17. Uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 17. This may be a familiar story to some of you, one that um, I've read multiple times, one that I've preached on before, but as we move now kind of through the whole gospel, um, approaching this point in Mark chapter 10, I think there'll be some new things that probably are, are brought to our attention this morning. Beginning in verse number 17, says this, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, their man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, Jesus said, and follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And if you're wondering why there is even a reference to a camel here, the camel was the largest uh, animal at that time that was known uh, in the Palestine area. So, so they're talking about the very largest animal that they are aware of going through the smallest hole known possible. Verse 26, the disciples, they were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you. He said, yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or property, for my sake, for the good news, will receive now and return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, children, property, along with persecution, and in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And then verse 32, let me go ahead and read these last few verses. Then they were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. The disciples, they were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and with a whip, and then kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity that we have to gather together in this place today. And God, it is my prayer that in these next few moments, as we spend time together around your word, that you would captivate our complete attention. 
Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. Help me to speak your word with boldness, with clarity, with simplicity, and help me to be your faithful mouthpiece this morning. And I pray for every heart in this room, every mind in this room, Holy Spirit, that you will convict and challenge and stir in our hearts a longing and a desire to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to give you our very all. And God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you remember whether it was as a kid or maybe as a parent with your kids or grandchildren going to a fair, to a carnival, and there's always those games where you have an opportunity to win a wonderful prize. And goldfish, goldfish. When I was a kid, uh, my sister and I with my family, we went to one of the fairs. I don't remember which fair in particular uh, we were at or a carnival. And there was that game where, you know, you could throw something just right and, and, and throw the ring. And if it, would, it landed on the right object, you could win that goldfish and take it home for it to die a couple, time, a couple days later. Um, well, my sister, who's three years younger than me, she so badly wanted and longed for that goldfish. My dad, I remember, I believe he forked out a few dollars, you know, a couple dollars, $5 bills, I don't know, a few, few opportunities to try to win. And I'm pretty sure those games are rigged anyways. But, you know, they tried and they tried and they tried. They couldn't win the goldfish. And my sister was absolutely disappointed. She wanted, she wanted that goldfish. She wanted to do whatever she could do to get it. My sister started to walk away and pretty sure my dad talked with um, the individual there running the game that day and next thing we know, my dad's walking away with a goldfish in his hand. I'm pretty sure he paid him off uh, to, to get that goldfish, but, but I don't know if you've ever been in that position before with your kids or maybe you as a kid, you're like, I, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I walk away uh, with some prize or something from the fair that day. And whether that means I fork out $20, $50 and keep playing, hopefully to win the big prize, not the little tiny prize that you walk home with, but the reality is that in our society today, in secular society, and especially even in the spiritual realm, we are consumed with this achievement mentality. We ask these kind of questions, what can I do to get that promotion? Do I need to work harder? Do I need to work longer hours? Do I need to put in overtime every single week? Do I need to work more strategically so people see me when I'm working so I can earn that promotion? Sometimes we ask this question, what can I do to get that person to like me or to notice me? So sometimes we'll say things like, well, maybe if I just buy them the right gift, they'll notice me. Maybe if I invite them over for a meal or invite them out for coffee or, or invite them over to my house, maybe they'll like me and notice me a little bit more. This achievement mentality, what can I do to earn or receive something in return? Well, this was the mentality 
of the man in our story today, the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10. He was all about the achievement mentality. What could he do personally to inherit eternal life? I want to just walk through this story, and there's some very important truths I want to share with you today. But what we see in the story, first of all, this man, I want you to hear this this morning, because sometimes we give this man a pretty bad rap uh, for his mentality. In reality, we're quite a bit like him. The man was genuinely interested in eternal life, which resulted in him coming to Jesus very eagerly and respectfully inquiring of Jesus, what can I do? What, what more must I do to inherit eternal life? So he came running to Jesus and he knelt down before him, showing this man great respect. And it also shows us that this man, this rich young ruler, was deeply interested in receiving eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus and he kneels down in a very respectful manner And he consulted Jesus as one would consult a rabbi. Yet he added this additional element in chapter 10, verse 17. He refers to Jesus as good teacher. Now I want you to know that in the Old Testament scriptures and according to Jewish practices, only God himself was characterized as good. So certainly Jesus had influenced this man at some level. And, and obviously, the, uh, the, the fact that Jesus was the Messiah was still disguised at some level at this point. And so, there in, in some reality, Jesus had a great influence on this man, so much so that he consulted him as a rabbi. He kneels down at the feet of Jesus, and he looks at him, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he had an incredible influence on this man, so much so that he gives him a title that was often reserved only for God and God alone. He directed his question to the good teacher in hopes of finding out what else was required of him to receive or to inherit eternal life. And this was certainly a valid question the man had, and he was eager to find out What more was required of him? We know that this man, he considered himself a good man based on what we see in Scripture because he was obedient to the commandments. We read in chapter 10, verse 19, he says the the commandments are, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. And then his response is, teacher... I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. So he was certainly by worldly standards and by the law, he was a law-abiding citizen since his youth. He says, teacher, I've obeyed them all since I was a young man. Now, that sounds very familiar to the testimony of Paul. I want to point you to what Paul says in regards to his passion and his zeal for the law. Listen to what Paul says. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law. Paul says, I was faultless. 
So Paul's testimony is very similar to this man. When it comes to the law, he, he upheld every, every aspect of the law. He didn't murder. He didn't cheat. He, he had a passion and a zeal for the law like none other. He maintained these strong horizontal relationships from his very early days. And he was certain, but he wanted additional assurance that his goodness, his law-abiding goodness was paying off. But according to Jesus, his present achievements and his simply good character were not enough to inherit eternal life. He still lacked something. I mean, he upheld the law like none other since he was a boy. He didn't murder. He didn't commit adultery. He, he was probably one of the best kids for a mom or a dad. He honored his father and mother like none other, but he still lacked something when it came to inheriting eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, there is still one thing you haven't done. He says, go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So what Jesus does for this man is he clarifies for him, he clarifies for his disciples that were present, and he certainly clarifies for us today what is required of those who desire to spend eternity in God's presence. So that's what I want to talk about for just a few moments this this morning. I want to talk about what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God. To enter God's kingdom, we must first of all acknowledge our helplessness before God. Jesus had previously illustrated this when he invited the little children to come unto him. If you remember, I read that at the very end of my message last week. I want to read it again. Look at Mark chapter 10 and listen to what Jesus does. He says, one day some parents, they brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. And then in verse number, next, next verse, there we go. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. Here's what I want you to see this morning. In order to understand the helplessness of the child, we have to understand how children were viewed in this context in the first place. They were deemed unimportant. They had no rights. They were utterly helpless from a socioeconomic position. They relied and depended completely upon their father and their mother. They could do nothing on their own. Yet Jesus says about these children who were completely helpless that the kingdom of God belonged to them. So how does the kingdom of God belong to someone who is completely helpless, helpless, who brings nothing to the table? It's because in their helpless state, they look to one who could offer them help. And that person was Jesus. Now, what's interesting about the rich young ruler is that the rich young ruler was anything but helpless. He lacked for nothing. He was materially wealthy, which is why Jesus called for him to sell his possessions and everything and to give to the poor in the first place. Jesus wanted to give him the perspective that he brings nothing to the table when it comes to entering God's kingdom. 
I wonder this, and I put this note down, because as you kind of look at the landscape of Christianity across the globe, and we begin to see that in places like South America or places like Asia um, or, or, or places where, where really there's no access to the gospel or little access to the gospel whatsoever, I begin to wonder and ask, why do we see the rise of Christianity in places such as third world countries? And I wonder if it's because they are physically, economically, medically, socially, and even spiritually helpless. And because of that, they look to only one who can provide complete relief and help, and that one is Jesus Christ. When we have everything at our disposal, what happens? We, if I'm materially wealthy or if I have resources at my disposal, I oftentimes put more trust in those things than I put in Jesus Christ. But if I have nothing, if there's nothing that I can trust in, if I don't have wealth, if I don't have possessions, if I don't have the resources or the friendships, then I'm not going to rely on those things because I don't have them. And so that's, that's why Jesus says to this particular man, I don't think this is a blanket statement uh, across all that we are to go and sell all of our possessions, but this particular man, he deeply, deeply trusted in his material wealth so much that he was unwilling to let go of it and trust in Jesus Christ to be his provider. What's interesting is from 1957 to 1990, the per capita of Americans actually doubled in real money. But those who reported as being, quote, very happy went unchanged, remaining at just one-third of those polled. I think we get this, this false sense of security that if I have more money, if I have more resources, if I have more at my disposal, I'll be more happy. But that is not the case. And the reality is the more that we trust in our stuff and in our things and in our resources and less in Jesus Christ, we're going to continually walk away sad just like the rich young ruler did. But here's what I want us to see then. As sinners, we are completely helpless and in desperate need of a Savior. Every single one of us in this room, Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, there is no one righteous, not one. All have sinned. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. If we're all sinners, that means we're all helpless. And that means all of us in this room are in desperate need of a Savior to rescue us from our sin so that we can spend eternity in his presence. I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount it's the very first beatitude, and I love the, the New Living Translation version of this. Listen to what Jesus says. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He blesses those who are poor. He's not talking about financially poor. He's talking about those who recognize that we are totally and utterly helpless when it comes to our relationship with God and spending eternity in his presence, we bring nothing to the table, but he blesses those and the kingdom of God belongs to those who realize and recognize, I can't earn it. I'm helpless. I need a savior who can rescue me so I can spend eternity in God's presence. Those who, who realize that we have a need for God, it's those who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And so that's why this, this, this rich man, he was unwilling to part with his possessions because he had so much trust in that. 
he didn't realize how much he desperately needed Jesus. No one is righteous. All have sinned. We all fall short. If we can't, and I want you to hear this this morning, if we can't acknowledge our helplessness, we will never run home to the Father. Think about the prodigal son for just a moment. Remember, he, he spends all of his father's inheritance. First of all, he asked for the inheritance before his father even dies, which was a slap in the father's face. And then he goes and he, he spends it on anything and everything worldly that he wanted to. And he got to a point where he had nothing left, so much so that he was literally eating with the pigs, um, just trying to survive. And the prodigal son comes to a place in his life where he recognizes, you know what, I'm completely helpless here. There's nothing I can do to, to earn my spot back when it comes to my relationship with my father. So he recognizes his helplessness. And what does it lead him to do? It leads him to return home to his father. And remember the, the picture of the father, the arms are open wide. The father every single day is looking for and waiting for and pursuing his son. And he sees his son coming from afar. And the son, he, he just wants to be you know, welcomed back in as a servant. He's, he's not even really interested in being placed back in, in position of, of son at this point. He realizes he's royally screwed up. And, and so if he can just get back in at the lowest level as a servant, he's fine with that. But the father is there ready to embrace him. Because he recognizes his utter helplessness, what does he do? He runs home to the father. And so in order for us to inherit eternal life, we have to realize and recognize we bring nothing to the table. We are utterly helpless when it comes to eternity and God's presence. And because we bring nothing to the table, we need to run to the father. We need to embrace him and realize that he is the only way that we can experience eternal life in his presence. So if we're gonna enter God's kingdom, we have to first of all, we have to recognize and acknowledge our utter helplessness. Number two, if we're gonna enter God's kingdom, we need to abandon our achievement mindset. And this, this might be one of the hardest things for, for us to do. And, and I'm, not, I'm not promising you that when you walk out of this room today that you're gonna have it all figured out because this, uh, I'm thankful that, that uh, our relationship with God's sanctification is a process um, where I am continually and daily becoming more and more like him. But if we're gonna enter into God's kingdom, we have to abandon this mindset of I've got to earn it. Listen to what Jesus or what the man says, good teacher. He says, what must I do? I do. That's, that's an achievement mentality. What can I do to inherit eternal life? The, the rich young ruler was looking here for a very specific task to complete or a command to follow to obtain eternal life. He was already an avid law keeper. I mean, the, the second half of the commandments, starting with honor your father and mother, number five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, I mean, he followed down to a T. He was, he was faultless when it came to abiding and following those laws. He was even rather secure in his doings. I mean, he felt pretty good about himself. I, I've lived a good life. I'm a good man, and, and, and I've followed the law, and I've been faithful, so what more do I lack? But what the law needs followed, or what task do I need to complete in order to be secure in eternity? That's what he was asking. What law do I need to follow? 
What one thing do I need to do? Do I need to, do I need to give more money to the poor? Do I need to attend services more often? Do I need to pray five times instead of three times a day? Do I need to you know, make sure that I, you know, the first thing that I do when I get up in the morning is, is read scripture and then pray and make sure that I read scripture before I go to bed? And so he's trying to ask the question and discern. And he says, good teacher, what one thing must I do, that achievement mentality to receive and to inherit eternal life? Do I need to pray more, attend church more, serve more, give more? And folks, I think as, as Christians, sometimes we, we ask the very same question, what more must I do? I want to spend eternity in God's presence. Do I need to make sure that I have perfect attendance every single year when it comes to, to, to being a faithful follower of Jesus? Do I need to make sure that I'm giving not 10%, but 15%? Is that what he's asking of me? And this whole achievement mentality is what Jesus is trying to break down. This achievement mentality or this mindset in relationship to inheriting eternal life is contrary to what Scripture teaches. Listen to what Paul says. God saved you how? By his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about us. Um, another translation is we're saved by grace, not, or we're saved by uh, grace through faith, not of any works, lest any man should boast. And then what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? So he, he says very specifically, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's not my, my giving. It's not my, my serving. All of those things should be a byproduct of somebody who loves Christ, who is a faithful follower, but that's not what inherit or gets us eternal life. It's through Jesus Christ in no other way. Uh, I, I pray and hope that we're all good people, but it's not our goodness that saves us. There's nothing we bring to the table. We need to rely completely on him and eliminate that achievement mentality. No matter the, intense, the intensity of human efforts, we can't achieve our way into God's kingdom. I can be the best follower of Jesus Christ. I can be the best giver. I can never miss a service. I can pray more than anyone else. But that achievement mentality will not get me entrance into God's kingdom. We bring nothing to the table. Every attempt to enter God's kingdom based on human merit or achievement is futile. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus looked at them intently and he said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. So what he means is if we, if we try to earn our way into the kingdom of God, it's impossible. We will fall short every single time. But with God, everything is possible. So we must stand before God, acknowledging our complete helplessness be constantly aware of our need of God and recognize if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, we need to recognize that we bring nothing to the table. Instead, it is completely the work of God. Number three, then, if we're going to enter or inherit the kingdom of God. What is required is that we have to rely on Christ alone. Jesus demanded one thing from the rich young ruler. Complete trust in him alone. Listen to what Jesus says. He says to him, the man comes, he kneels down. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus refers to the commandments that speak of horizontal relationships. And he says, I've done those since I was a boy. And then Jesus looks at him and he said, there's still one thing that you lack. One thing that you fall short on. And he says, go sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He was asking the man to position himself so that he would recognize that it's not his wealth, his treasures, his resources, what he has that's going to earn him a spot in God's presence. Instead, it was going to be complete dependence on Christ and Christ alone. The rich young ruler, he placed more stock in his material possessions than he did in a relationship with Jesus. And as a result of that, he walked away sad. He was unwilling to rely completely on God. Essentially, what the rich young ruler was saying was, I I, I still want to hold on to these things. These things give me security. These things give me uh, assurance. These things give me confidence. I feel good when I have these things. I'm not willing to part with them. And what Jesus is asking is, I want all. I want all of you. I don't want you with your possessions that you're trusting because what's going to happen is at some point you're going to rely on them and not me. I want to see that you're all in. I want to see that you are committed to me and me alone, not not me when things are going well, but when things get tough, you go back to your possessions and your wealth. No, I want all of you. And, And that's why Jesus says to the man, I want you to go and I want you to sell these possessions. It's not that Jesus had anything Um, bad to say about wealth and money, absolutely not, but he recognized that this man had more confidence and more trust in what he owned and what he had than in Jesus. And so he wants him to surrender. He wants him to completely surrender those things, get rid of them so that he can completely trust in Christ and Christ alone. Instead, the man wanted to maintain this false sense of security that his wealth provided. And as a result, He left the conversation sad and likely missing out on eternal life in God's kingdom. It says, at this, the man's face fell. Probably one of the saddest statements in Scripture. And he went away sad, for he had many possessions. He wanted to inherit eternal life, but he wasn't willing to part with his possessions. And so he walked away from the opportunity to enter God's kingdom. And what did he walk away with? Yeah, he walked away with his possessions. And maybe it got him by here on earth, but he missed out on something even more important. And that was eternity in God's presence. Several truths, and I'm just gonna give these to you quickly and then we'll be done this morning. There's several important truths that emerge from this text that we need to embrace if we want to spend eternity in God's presence. Number one, eternal life is not achieved through our doing. Instead, we have to submit to God's sovereign rule so he can rule and reign over every aspect of our life. I say this as I pray often for, for the offering. I've preached a sermon about this, but God is the owner of everything, anything that we have in the first place, even the possessions that belong to this rich young man, they weren't his in the first place. They belonged to God. God entrusted him with those possessions, asking him to steward those, and he was asking the man to give all and to come follow him. And so we have to recognize that we don't achieve eternal life. Instead, we have to submit to God's sovereign rule and submit ourselves to his his rulership or to his kingship. David Garland said this, following Jesus, which leads to salvation, does not depend on human ability. It comes from the one who makes all things possible. The impossible becomes possible when divine power infuses a disciple's life through faith. 
Number two, our ultimate loyalty and our devotion must be to Christ and Christ alone. Uh, that's, the, that's the truth of this story. He was wanting to split his devotion two ways. He wanted to serve two masters, wealth and God, and that was not going to work. Jesus wanted all, and he wanted all of him, and he wasn't willing to part with that. Therefore, loyalty and devotion to Christ alone was not something this man was interested in. David Garland said this, few are willing to divest themselves of whatever provides security in this life to enter a new quality of life under God's rule. Number three, the call to be sold out for Christ is certainly radical. And it can and will for some lead to extreme persecution, certainly demands our very all. But this sold out life for Christ, I can promise you this morning, results in eternal fellowship with Jesus. And as I've said over the last few weeks when we've talked about being all in, though it may bring persecution, though it may bring hardship, though it may bring some difficulties, though it may not be easy, it is absolutely and 100% worth it. Because what it will result in is eternal life and fellowship in God's presence. Number four, we must guard carefully the temptation to trust in our material resources and personal power over and against Christ alone. Again, God doesn't have any problem with us having possessions or having wealth or having things in general. That's not the, the point of this message. But what Christ is interested in is is not half-hearted devotion. He wants complete loyalty and complete devotion. So if there is something, whether it be those resources, whether it be those relationships, whether it be something we have that's going to take the place of a relationship with Jesus or we're going to place more confidence and trust in that than in Christ alone, then maybe he wants us to get rid of those things so that we can give him our complete loyalty. Via in ethics that all must give up whatever stands in the way of total commitment to following Jesus and love for the community. I can't answer that question for any of you in, that, in this room today. I can only answer that question for me, but I would certainly encourage you, as I will myself, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit what things are getting in the way What things that maybe are good things have become barriers to my relationship with Jesus and I'm placing more trust in that than I am in Christ. And I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, show me, reveal to me those things in my life. Maybe we're not even aware of it, but maybe we need the Holy Spirit to bring those things to light in us so that our devotion can be directed toward him. And then a Roman satirist said this, majestic Mighty wealth is the holiest of our gods. And certainly was true of the rich young ruler. Number five, I'm almost done. The gospel demands wholehearted reliance on God, which implies we must remove every other support that could interfere with unconditional obedience. And then number six, following Jesus is to lay hold of the authentic life that is offered as a gift in his own person. And what did Jesus say? I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. 
Certainly, we may look at our possessions. We may look at that relationship. We may look at our wealth. We may look at whatever resources we have at our, at our disposal and say, wow, this, this brings me great joy and this brings me happiness. I can promise you, maybe it does now temporarily, but it will disappoint. It won't satisfy for all of eternity. We've all been created with this sort of hole in our heart, not a physical hole, but, but this spiritual hole that, that is longing to be filled, and it can only be filled and satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And there are so many people in our world today that are trying to, to satisfy that, that longing and that emptiness through another relationship or, or through a promotion or through a job or, or, or through their finances or through their wealth. And, and, and maybe for a season, it feels like that's providing you some satisfaction and joy. But in reality, that's just a disguise. It's not. Because the only thing that can truly satisfy that, that longing that your heart has is a relationship with Jesus. And this man, he's so long. Look, he, he was searching for the right thing. He comes to Jesus and he says, I, 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 what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's left? I, I've obeyed the commandments. I've obeyed the law since I was a young boy. What else must I do? He was searching to fill that void in his life. He felt the void and he was looking for an answer and Jesus gave him the answer. He said, go and sell everything else that you have and give that money to the poor because that's a roadblock in, in, in your relationship with me. You're depending in that and not in me. So get rid of that thing that you're depending on, that you're trusting in, and I want you to come and give me your complete devotion and loyalty. Worship team, if you want to come, I want to end with this story. So Jesus, he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And that life more abundantly cannot be experienced through those things, those possessions, through wealth, through relationships. It can only be experienced through and in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one that came to give us life. Annie Dillard tells of the ill-fated Franklin expedition to the Arctic in 1845. That Odyssey was a turning point in Arctic exploration because of its well-publicized failure. Preparations made were more suitable for the Royal Navy Officers Club in England than for the frigid Arctic. The explorers made room on their ships for a large library a hand organ, china place settings, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware instead of additional coal for their steam engines. The ornate silver flatware was engraved with the individual officer's initials and family crests. Search parties found clumps of bodies of men who had set off to walk for help with their, when their supplies ran out. One skeleton wore his fine blue cloth uniform edged with silk braid, hardly a match for the bitter Arctic cold. Another apparently chose to carry with him the place setting of sterling silver flatware. What must he have been thinking to 
to take sterling silver or tableware in search for help and food. One cannot imagine that any of these sailor adventurers would have said as they neared death on the frozen landscape, quote, I wish I had brought more silver place settings. So then she says, are hanging on to things that are ultimately useless will look no less foolish. Many cannot envision life without things they cherish. They are in danger of losing the only life that counts. The life that Jesus promised to bring. I have come to give you life and life 